SHSS podcast. Let's talk learning. We welcome Paul Cunningham. Will you tell us a small bit about yourself, Paul, if that's okay? Hi, my name is Paul. I come from Dublin. I'm married to Flora, who comes from West Cork. She's Skibbereen and has spent as much time as possible down in Baltimore as I possibly can. I've got three kids, the youngest of which is 16 and is about to do his junior cert. So he would really like to be in TY rather than spending the next 12 or 13 weeks reading his books. As a job, I have been working in RT for nearly 30 years. So I've worked on radio, TV, online. I've really enjoyed it. I've worked on environment as a correspondent for 10 years. I've worked for Europe. I've been in Europe for five years and I'm now the political correspondent, which is a job I love. What's your best memory of your school days? So my favourite thing about being in uh, school was joining a, a rock and roll band. And um, we started playing in music events and then we started playing in town. I wasn't particularly good, but I really liked it. I liked making music. I don't really have a great sort of moment in school where like I won a cup or there was some big event. I loved hanging out with my friends, making new friends. I liked listening to new music. I suppose if I think about school, I think about things that I probably learned. I learned that I was good across country running. But I wasn't very good at playing football. I learned that I liked science, but I wasn't very good at maths. I liked history. So there was a few things like that that I learned how to work out about what you were good at or better at. Although in looking at this or preparing for this, I went and looked through some of my old school reports for secondary school. And they all said, could do better, (laughs) must work harder, should not talk in class, that type of stuff. (laughs) What steps did you take to become a journalist? The first step wasn't a step at all. I sat beside my friend Barry Handy, and his dad was an editor in the Irish Independent, Niall Hanley. So Barry wanted to be an editor. He wanted to run a newspaper. And I happened to sit beside him in the old days. He used to have desks where two people sat in the same desk together. So I sat beside Barry. And from that, once we went to secondary school, we started up our own school newsletter called Spellbinder. And it was basically A4 papers scrunched together with staples. And we used to hand it out for free. And then I started to work for, not work, but like offer articles to a local free sheet about missing dogs and people raising money for charity. And from that, I still liked writing and still liked doing journalism. So I started to write articles about people who I knew. And the first time I got an article in a national newspaper was about my friend Kieran, who had studied film, couldn't get a job and was going to London. So I just kept following that. And eventually I ended up meeting someone from RCE, getting a job as a runner inside the newsroom. And that's where I really liked broadcast. That's where I started. What were the highs and lows of your job? I thought about this one carefully. And I think the first thing to say is that I really like my job. I know that many of you were thinking about what jobs you might want to go to. And for me, the only thing I'd say is go to a job where you really enjoy, because then even if it's a high or a low, it doesn't really make that much because you're doing stuff that you enjoy. So the highs for my job are when you get a story first or when you do it really well, maybe a good performance on the nine o'clock television news, or whether for me, travel and being a a journalist who travels was very important. So I'm lucky enough to have reported in around 50 countries and five continents, many of them wars and disaster zones. And that's something I really get something from telling stories of people who are in difficult places. The lows, I think, are that you don't get the story. Someone else gets it first, or they tell it better. Or you make a mistake in the middle of the nine o'clock news and you know there's half a million people looking at you and you just made a total bags of it. (laughs) Or that you've got stress because there was so much that you had to do and then you made the wrong choice and you decided this story over that story. So those can be some of the lows. But overall, I like my job. So when I get up in the morning and head out, I'm going good. So that's a great start. 
So you recently reported from the Polish and Ukrainian border. Was this the most dangerous assignment you've experienced to date? No, it wasn't, because I was reporting always from the Polish side of the border with Ukraine. So my colleague, Tony Connolly, who I worked with in Brussels with, he's a Europe editor, and he's actually a good friend of mine and of Flores. He was in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, so he was being shelled and shot at, so he was in danger. I most certainly was not. I was on the Polish side. I was looking at what was coming. But if I think to other stories I've reported from, say, Hurricane Katrina, which New Orleans was flooded from the fifth largest city in the United States, and I was in a canoe rowing down the middle of the street, or I was at Fukushima Daiichi plant in Japan, where it was hit by a tsunami and there was radioactive waste coming out. Or if I was in Bosnia in the Bosnian War in 1993, that was very dangerous. But the most dangerous, I think, I found was in 2014 when I was in Kiev in Ukraine and there was a war broke out just outside a hotel and 50 people were shot dead in less than 12 hours. So that was probably the most dangerous place I was in. What was the most shocking thing you noticed during your time there? I think the most shocking thing I noticed while I was there was just the sheer volume of women and children crossing the border into Poland. In the eight days I was there, nearly one million people travelled from Ukraine, fled as a result of the Russian onslaught, fled into Poland. And most of them were women and very young kids. I mean, little children with pink hands because they'd been standing for 24 hours in the cold. I remember meeting one girl called Masha and she was ace and she talked to me about how the war started and the way she expressed herself. She said, when the big cars with the big bombs came to my hometown and they started to go off, my mum heard about them first, but then she told me, and that's why I'm here, standing at around 10 o'clock at night, having no idea where she was going to go and having left her three-year-old sister back where the bomb cars were. And I think it was meeting those children in such numbers over such a short space of time that really shocked me. Why, in your opinion, did Russia invade Ukraine? I think that's a a really simple one. The reason why it invaded was because the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, ordered his troops, 200,000, to cross the border. That is the reason. There's no other reason. He has given explanations as to why he said he had to do that. He said that the government in in Ukraine was nationalist. He said that they were anti-Russian. He said that Russian speakers in the east of the country were being treated badly. But there is no justification for sending in 200,000 soldiers surrounding a, a town and bombing it to hell. So that's the reason why the war started, because one man Vladimir Putin decided he wanted to take control of another independent, sovereign country. What effect would the international sanctions have on the world? I think we're still going to find out. Sanctions aren't something which have a quick effect. They're like a a slow choke. They get tighter and tighter. I think what we can say is that the sanctions are going to affect everyone. They're going to affect every country in the world. But what's more likely to happen or the aim of the sanctions is that they will affect Russia and Belarus worst. And what they're trying to do is what they call targeted sanctions. So they are directed at Vladimir Putin. They're directed at the parliamentarians who voted through this war. They're directed at the business people who support them. They're directed at the companies that support the president. They're directed at the economy, at the central bank. And what they're trying to do is to make things so difficult that they choose to negotiate a settlement rather than continue with the war. But at the moment, there doesn't seem any sign that the war is going to stop. So we have got EU leaders meeting later on this week, and they say they're going to apply even more sanctions. And I think that's what you're going to see. If you take it back to Ireland, we're already seeing problems. We're going to pay more for petrol and diesel. We're going to pay more for things like food, because many of the fertilizers come from Russia, they come from Belarus. And so if they're being sanctioned, that means we have to pay more for them. And one interesting thing we're trying to do, and it's a start, is we're trying to grow more tillage. There's going to be a cabinet meeting today. They're going to give 12 million more euro to tillage farmers to grow more plants and wheat and oats so it would be 
become more self-sufficient. So I think that's another consequence of sanctions. What is your opinion on Vladimir Zelensky? I think he's a very brave man. I mean, as the president, he could have chosen to leave his country. He could have gone to, say, Geneva and Switzerland, set up a government in exile and made big declarations from there. And instead, he's decided to stay. He's staying in Ukraine. He's staying in Kiev. He's staying in a, in, a, in a city which is pretty clear that the Russians are going to try and encircle. That's what they've been trying to do for the past four weeks. If you look at another city called Mariupol, which is over in the east, they have encircled just Russian forces and they've been bombing military, but also civilian targets. They're bombing everything. They've cut the water, they've cut the electricity, they've cut the food, and effectively what they're trying to do is to squeeze the life out of the city. That's what's happening to Kiev. It's a little few weeks further back, but that's what they're trying to do. So I think the fact that Zelensky has stayed means that he's very brave. It also means he's been able to gather more support for his country by staying there because he's saying, effectively, I am not leaving just because Russian forces are here. I'm going to stay with my people. There has been a dramatic response to the Ukrainian refuge crisis. This cannot be said for other refugees from, for example, Syria or Yemen. Why do you think this is? I think there's a, that's a great question, and I think there's a couple of reasons for it. One is that because there is a risk of World War III, nuclear war breaking out, there's a huge focus on Ukraine. I think it's also the case that just the numbers of people traveling into EU countries so like in Poland, small 1.5 million people. That means people in the European Union are, are focused on it. It's, it's an immediate regional thing. I think it's also that what's happened is so dramatic and that many of the people who are there are speaking English and speaking it so well. I think that all means that media also react to it. And I don't think, say, the country that you just mentioned a moment ago, Yemen, has had the same impact and the same thing travels with Syria. And I think that is a tragedy in many ways, that refugees are treated differently. If you go all the way back to 1993, I mentioned I travelled to Bosnia. Ireland, in response to that, set up a refugee programme, which it accepted only 600 refugees. 1,000 ultimately came. But one of them is a man called Damir Katsila, who is a very good friend of mine. He came from Sarajevo, another city which was surrounded and bombed. And a few years after he came, he became an Irish citizen. And I was lucky enough to be one of two people to put my name on his passport. And he's now an Irish citizen and living here. And so the positive thing, I hope, is it's going to happen is that because so many rights are being given to Ukrainian people so quickly that they're being given you know, a place to stay, they're being given a PPS number, which means that they can work. I think those types of changes should mean that we don't have the same bad situation for people who lived in direct provision for so many years, people waiting for 10 or 11 years before they get those things that some people arriving now are being given overnight. So the hope is the positive is that we will now recognize what a refugee actually means and give all refugees the same thing. Why do you think history continues to repeat itself? Why can't we learn from the past? The million dollar question. I guess that something inside of us is, is wrong and that people will choose to take what isn't theirs. In the case of Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, it seems to me that he wants his place in history as the leader who reunited lost lands, even though he's talking about a sovereign, independent state, and he's prepared to do anything to achieve that. And we've seen leaders like that in the past 20 years, hundreds of years, thousands of years. There's a famous Roman leader called Marcus Aurelius. He said, talked about how you shouldn't debate what is good. You should just be it. And I think we all know what being good means. You and your class being good to your friends, being good to your family. You know what is right and wrong. You don't need a lecture or someone to put it up on the whiteboard behind you. So if we want to stop repeating history, we have to be good. And we know inside ourselves what that means. And that's probably the greatest lesson we can take. And we can do it, all of us, every day, right now. 
thank you so much and best of luck in your future career <laughs> thanks so much guys 